welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. While many people in power ignored the mounting evidence of the opioid crisis in 2011, one leader refused to turn a blind eye. During his watch as director of the Center of Disease Control, Dr. Tom Frieden and his team were the first government agency to sound the alarm bells, waking our nation up to the reality of the opioid epidemic. Joining us today to share his insights from his time as director of the CDC and his perspective on the opioid epidemic today is former director, Dr. Tom Frieden. Thank you very much for doing this, and it's nice to speak with you. Great to have you on. You were appointed the director of the CDC when President Obama took office in 2009. One of the first things that you did was wade through an 800-page health statistics document, and you were shocked by what you learned. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. In health, most things are getting better. Not fast enough. Some things aren't getting better at all, but it's very rare to see a health trend go in the wrong direction. And the only thing, really, that was going in the wrong direction in that hundreds-page-long summary of health in the United States was deaths from overdoses. And that was the first real tip in my mind that this was a huge problem, big enough to actually change health status in the U.S. overall. So that was a big revelation for you. But here's the thing that's kind of baffling about this. There were some members, the early members of Congress, who recognized the opioid crisis dating back to 2003 and were trying to get something done. You know, Congressman Hal Rogers, for example. So in 2011, you declared prescription drug overdoses an epidemic in our nation. Uh, So you were the first in of any government agency to do so. So why do you think that it took so long? And why didn't the other government agencies that were on the front line, such as the DEA and the FDA, take action earlier, do you think? I really don't know what led to the lack of earlier response. I do know that Chairman Hal Rogers really has been a wonderful leader through all of this. He saw it early. He early recognized that it couldn't just be about enforcement. It had to be a comprehensive program that included treatment and prevention and education and enforcement. He created a national organization, which remains a critically important leader in this area. What the CDC can do is sound the alarm and work with states and localities to figure out what works. And that's what we began doing immediately uh, when I saw the serious problem that we had. Today, most states have prescription monitoring systems, but not long ago, that wasn't the case. In fact, you were one of the first to really push for those, to stop doctor shopping. And you also advocated shutting down the pill mills. 
And you were the first government agency leader to recognize this ripple effect, which is so, so important. The ripple effect that over-prescribing of opioids that resulted in the rise in heroin use, the resurgence of HIV, the surge in hep C, and the increases in uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome, and the multitude of other issues that were caused by that. But here's, here's the question. You weren't really given the budget to fight these things. Why do you think that is? I think politicians um, in all uh, parts of government at all levels, all, both parties, were slow to recognize what a terrible problem this is. As an epidemiologist, I look at numbers, but I don't see numbers. I see faces. I see lives. I see parents and children. And what we saw in these numbers was horrifying. It was all ages, from neonatal abstinence to elderly, both addicted and also having car crashes because of impaired driving with uh, opiates and other uh, active psychoactive substances. We saw it, males and females, all race groups, and we saw it spreading across the country. We saw it coming in in some places, and we knew it would spread to others. So this was a horrifying problem from my standpoint, and I did go to powerful people in Washington and said, let's do a big bipartisan push on this. And it just fell flat. And then I went to groups within the the, the Health and Human Services and I said, let's do a very focused attempt. And I outlined what's needed to get done. But, you know, government isn't good at acting fast. Uh, And CDC is good at acting fast. CDC sees a problem, responds to it. And one of the things I've tried to do throughout my career is apply some of the lessons we have learned in the control of infectious diseases to the control of other problems. When we see an outbreak of measles or typhoid, uh, we respond in the same day and we implement programs. And if they don't work, we implement other programs. We try to use that same kind of urgency, focus, and dependence on data involving different sectors to respond to problems like overdoses or road crashes or tobacco use. Because these are the leading causes of death today, and public health has just as much to do to stop them and prevent them uh, as it does the traditional public health roles of infectious disease control. I want to go back to when you declared the opioid crisis an epidemic. That had really a major impact. And in 2011, that kind of shifted, I think, the nation's attention do you really do you have a sense for the big impact that 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 had really? We did two things. First was to sound the alarm to say, "Hey, this is a huge problem, folks. Pay attention. Let's do everything we can to stop it." And second, let's begin setting up the whole system that we need to understand it, to stop it, to track it, to find positive uh, results in different places. And that latter took a lot of time. Uh, We didn't first understand everything about where it was spreading. As you mentioned earlier, we didn't have prescription drug monitoring programs up in most states. And in fact, as late as 2016, I could say there isn't a state in the country that has a uh, uh, PDMP that has all of the attributes it should, real-time, universal, actively managed. So one of the things that we began looking for were communities programs that were working. Uh, It's one thing to say, there's a really big problem. It's another to say, if we do these 
one, two, three, four, five things, we can do more to reduce that problem. So you uncovered a lot of statistics on this that revealed the fact that this epidemic was occurring in the white population. And some think that that had something to do with this call to action. Now that it was affecting the white population, that meant action could be taken, and that meant that it was a disease and not moral failing. Can you comment on that? I don't think this had to do with our decision to highlight this as a problem. I do think it has affected the narrative on this. I do think it's affected stigma. And I've said it before, I'll be blunt about it. When uh, people dying from addiction, uh, which is a disease, were mostly black and Hispanic, it was seen as a moral failing. When people dying from this disease were, to a larger extent, white, it was recognized as the disease it is. As the leader of the CDC, you took an unusual step of telling doctors to rein in their prescribing practices. So that caused the Pain Care Forum to go to work on Capitol Hill to really undermine your organization. And they pressed Congress to actually, and I find this just appalling, they, they pressed Congress to investigate the CDC to uncover any influence from special interests. What happened there? It's really interesting. In, in my career, I spent uh, more than a decade fighting infectious diseases, in particular tuberculosis. And that was hard because the main thing we were fighting there was apathy and the absence of good treatment systems. Then I became health commissioner of New York City and then director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I, I look at data because data means lives. And the data showed that what's killing Americans today are not so much the infectious diseases, though they're still really important to prevent and control. But it's the non-communicable diseases, injury, things like tobacco use, alcohol use, um, unsafe roads, unsafe foods, unhealthy foods. Um, and the result of all of that is that the, the challenge in fighting those conditions is not a microbe. The challenge is an industry. And the industry is looking at their profits. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money ethically. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's something very wrong with making money by making other people sick or killing them. And as a society, I think we have to say there's a big difference between tobacco, alcohol, unhealthy food, and addictive substance industries and other parts of our economy. We're not anti-business. We're anti-businesses killing people. So the investigation, it turned up nothing. No, in fact, at CDC, um, we took a very strict view about conflicts of interest. There are other federal agencies which have a different philosophy on conflict of interest. Um, some entities say, it's okay if you've worked for a drug company as long as you disclose that when you give your recommendations. At CDC, we did not agree with that. And we, I don't agree with that because you know, people's opinions change for reasons that they may not be aware of. And if you're getting a paycheck from someone or you have in the future, or you have in the past, or you might in the future, you might in ways that you don't even recognize have a different opinion than you would otherwise. So our conflict of interest rules were actually stricter than most parts of the federal government. We said, if you've got any conflict of interest, 
you can't be there. Now, the companies would like to say that if I've provided education on how to do better prescribing uh, to a hospital, that was a conflict of interest. That's not a conflict of interest. That's doing uh, what some very wonderful doctors have done to try to address improving healthcare. Uh, we also were threatened with a lawsuit from an industry-backed uh, entity. They said, don't produce your guidelines. And they went through when they looked at whether we had dotted every I and crossed every T. And uh, we realized that we would have to delay the process by a few months, uh, reopen it, have it as part of public comment. And it was a very interesting process, actually. It, it did delay it by, by a bit. But we got thousands of comments. We read all of them. And they actually strengthened the guidelines because those comments showed us some additional evidence, some proof that not only are opiates much less safe than other ways of treating pain, but they also are less effective. If you take opiates, the way you perceive pain changes and you'll feel more pain, it'll, be, it'll hurt more with the same sensation for someone who's not on opiates. So not only are these drugs dangerous, not only are they way less safe than many other ways of managing pain, but they're also not as effective in the long term for most patients. I want to go back to the conflicts of interest because having the guidelines and having those published, that's fascinating. You publish your conflict rules. Absolutely. And we also looked at it very comprehensively at, at CDC. We have a CDC foundation which gets money from private industry as well as from philanthropy. And we looked very carefully at every kind of donation there to see if there's any conflict of interest. Uh, one of the reasons we issued the first ever guideline on management of acute pain was that there was nothing out there. When we declared this an epidemic in 2011, we began looking for what needs to get done. And it became clear at this point that it was largely big fancy word, an iatrogenic epidemic. Iatrogenic, fancy word, meaning the doctor caused it. This was for about three quarters of people addicted to opiates. They had started with a prescription medication. And uh, if doctors could start it, then doctors had a very important role in stopping it. But this meant uh, going against this huge industry that had been pushing pain as a vital sign and this concept of a quick fix. And I think it's also fair to recognize that it's not just industry that was at fault, that there is something in our culture, in our society, there where we want a quick fix. We want to make sure that if we let's come up with a treatment plan for you that gives you less pain and allows you to do the things you want to do with your life. Because that's the bottom line. Can you do what you want to do with your life? And for most people who are addicted to medications, that doesn't mean thinking about where the next fix is going to come from all the time. So despite having that pushback from the industry and from some members of Congress, you pressed ahead and published your guidelines in the New England Journal of Medicine. So what happened to the, the doctors across the board did they change their prescribing practices? Did they begin to adhere to this? Or what have you seen? What the facts show is that prescriptions were already decreasing before we issued the guideline. After all, we had spent the last five years 
thing, too many opiates are being prescribed. We should be reducing them. We and other groups were already making that point and making it very forcefully. Uh, what the guideline did was to accelerate that trend and uh, to give a very clear reason for it, rationale, means of it. Now, I have to say, the guideline has also been misused and misinterpreted by some groups. And actually, just this week, there's an article in the New England Journal of Medicine about that that clarifies this because some doctors used the guideline as a way of saying to patients, I don't want to treat you anymore. Uh, and that's unethical and unfortunate. Some insurers and other payers used the guideline to, to put in things that were not recommended in the guideline. The guidelines never say you should forcefully detoxify this patient and refuse them medications. In fact, quite the contrary. They say it's very difficult to get people off uh, the long-term use of medications. I think that there's so something to understand that is crucial in this. This is an epidemic that worsened over the course of a generation, and it's not going to end overnight. But there are two essential things that we as a society have to do, and all of us can play a role in those two things. The first is to stop new addictions caused by prescriptions, and the second is to improve care of people who have addiction to opioids, which is a disease. And for each of those two things, there are things that we can do. They're very specific interventions. In terms of stopping new iatrogenic or doctor-caused addiction, I think we have to put in systems so that anytime a doctor is about to write a prescription for an opiate for a patient who's not received it before, an opiate-naive patient, as they're called, uh, they really need to think not twice, but 10 times before doing that. Is there a better, safer way? Are there physical therapy modalities? Are there other medicines that can be used? And about half of all opiates are used for chronic pain. And really, they should very rarely, if ever, be used for chronic pain for patients who are newly being treated. And for acute pain, there are times when they should be used, and it's really clear. You should give three days or less and no re refills. Now, there are some public policy things that might be able to be done on that, but that's very important. The second issue is improving the care who are, of people who are addicted to opioids. And the single most important thing that needs to be done for that is to change the federal law on buprenorphine prescription. It just makes no sense. Just to go over this, buprenorphine is the only opiate that is less addictive and safer than heroin. It's the only one. Uh, every other opiate out there has the same risk of killing you and getting you addicted as heroin. So they're, they're legal heroin. Let's call it what it is. Uh, buprenorphine, not perfect. It's not a safe drug, but it's less dangerous than the others. And it reduces the risk that you will die from an overdose. We should make sure that buprenorphine is no harder to prescribe than any other opiate. And then we should make sure that anyone who is on opiates has the opportunity to get onto buprenorphine. That includes people in jail, people in emergency departments, people in primary care, uh, people all over society. In one country where they did this, they saw deaths from opiates decrease by more than 70% over just a few years. You were at the National Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit in Atlanta, Georgia, right? 
Actually, I wasn't. I'm now focusing on global health issues, but the one U.S. health issue that I remain quite involved in is opioid overdose because it's such a terrible tragedy and we all need to be doing more. And the organization where I currently work called Vital Strategies currently has uh, a very important program focusing on a couple of states to reduce opiate use with funding from Bloomberg Philanthropies, which has implemented a large program in the U.S. on this on this problem. Doctor, what are we doing well today to address the opioid crisis? And then I'll ask you the flip side of that. What are we doing poorly? So what are we doing well? Uh, it's hard to see the, the positive side here because the problem uh, is is not going to go away soon. But one thing we're doing well is that we're recognizing that this is a big problem. A second thing is that we're working to reduce the stigma of addiction, and that's very important. A third is we've got better information about what's happening so we can track trends and respond to them more effectively, prevent them better. We improve prescription drug monitoring programs so that they're doing better. And we've seen a substantial decrease in prescriptions of opiates. Um, so those are all real positives. There are communities that are really activated and doing a lot in this area. Um, so I think we've done a good job of recognizing the problem. Uh, we've done a less good job of reversing it. Um, though the reduction in opiate prescriptions, I think, is a very encouraging trend. But there is so much we need to do better. Fundamentally, we need to get better at managing both pain and addiction. We don't do a good job on either of those things in this country. We need to do a better job managing pain by using things like physical therapy, local measures, injections, heat, cold, Tylenol, and Motrin. Uh, and people may say, oh, that's not, that's not good, that's not strong. But actually, if you look at the data, uh, the pain relief from those measures is uh, as good as the pain relief from opiates for the vast majority of patients. Interestingly, I was talking to a dentist recently who commented that even though he does a lot of dental work, he went six months without prescribing opiates even once to one of his patients because there's so many other good medicines that can work. Better job managing pain, also better job managing addiction. And this really means that anyone who's addicted needs to be able to get buprenorphine or methadone or other treatment modalities with no barriers, no co-pays, no, uh, you can't get it here as we have now in emergency departments and jails and prisons. Addiction is a disease and there are proven treatments for it. Not providing those treatments is unethical and it's also unwise. Um, one of the things that I think we could do better is to get a better sense of who is still getting addicted by clinicians? Where are the new addictions happening so that we can pinpoint those and prevent them? You have to kind of think of this problem as having two components. In one component, there are the people who are currently on opiates, about 12 million people in the U.S., about 2 million of whom are using them regularly. In the other component are 300 million plus others. And for the 300 million plus who are not on opiates, they're dangerous drugs. Don't start them unless absolutely essential. For those who are on opiates, let's work with you so that we can manage the situation so you can have the maximal functioning that you want 
with the minimum chance that you may have an overdose and die. Is there a game changer that you can think of out there that you've been exposed to or a strategy out there that if done right, it has the potential to end this epidemic in the next five years? I don't think there is a a simple fix to this problem. Uh, And I think we have to look at two different components of it. One is what we call in public health incidents, new addictions. I think we can substantially reduce new addictions by further improving prescribing patterns and the management of pain and the information so we know how many people are becoming newly addicted each year. And the second is to improve the care for people who are currently on opiates. And there the game changer is essentially buprenorphine for all who want it. That approach in another country led to a 70 plus percent decrease in just a few years. Those are the two game changers, but this problem is going to be with us for a while, and we have to all hold ourselves accountable. Congress for changing the law on buprenorphine, doctors for doing a better job managing pain and addiction, and all of us for recognizing that some things in life hurt, and we want to minimize those things. But ultimately, what's most important is that we do what we want to do with our lives, and that may mean that you take a little less pain medication so you can do more of what you value more. Or it may mean if you're on palliative care for cancer that you increase your pain medication because that's what you want to do. But remember, one of the things that the disease of addiction does is it reduces your options. It makes it harder for you to do what you want to do. And that's what we want to avoid. Last question. What do you want listeners to take away from this podcast, Dr.? I think a few things. Uh, We have to get better at managing pain and addiction. If you have pain, think of ways to manage it that are going to work for you and not risk your health. And if you have, uh, if you're using an opiate, uh, be clear that these are dangerous drugs and we want to make sure you get the best possible care so that you have a minimum risk of having an overdose or dying. I want to thank you for your time today and just, uh, boy, I, I, I tell you what, reading the role that you played in this and stepping up as a, a, a leader to make a big difference in the opioid epidemic, uh, it's, it's no telling where we would be had, uh, had you not done the things that you did and, and dig right into this just as soon as you were uh, appointed that important role as leader of the CDC. So uh, I want to thank you. Well, thank you very much and thank you for the work you're doing. We've been joined today by the former director of the Center for Disease Control, Dr. Tom Frieden, who was the first leader of a government agency to declare the opioid crisis an epidemic. In 2011, Dr. Frieden helped us wake up and recognize the crisis emerging throughout our country. For more information on Dr. Frieden and his work, go to cover2.org. That's cover, the number two, dot org. As a reminder, on Thursday evening, July 25th, the City of Green will be hosting a unique launch party concert with CMA award-winning country music artist Shane Runyon to celebrate this new and unique community initiative that they're launching that connects overdose victims with Narcan carriers in the vicinity. And in the process, it saves lives. On that evening, we'll gather to celebrate those who have chosen to become registered Narcan carriers 
and those who have also chosen to install the Nalox boxes to make Narcan just as accessible as defibrillators in public places. And finally, we'll be celebrating those community leaders that made it possible. For more information on this event, go to cfr.help. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.